the army, your body is your vehicle. It's everything. So if you don't train properly, if you don't take care of that body, unfortunately, you won't be able to do the job for as long. Hi, I'm Captain Adam Morton with the Canadian Army Podcast. When people think of the staff at PSP or the personal support programs, they think of people running fitness plans and gyms or maybe helping you get fit during basic training. But there's actually a lot more science going on in the background than you might think. And there's a whole cell dedicated to doing the science of soldiering. Here to talk to us a bit about it is Patrick Gagnon, who is the national manager at the Human Performance Research and Development Cell at PSP. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Adam. Glad to be here. Yeah, so my first interaction with your cell was during the development of the force combat evaluation, which is a specific fitness test for the Army. And I was a part of the trials, and I got to see a lot of the, how the science was happening in the background. And I realized that PSP maybe did a lot more than what most of us thought was providing fitness routines and training and stuff. There's actually a lot of science going on back there. So tell us a little bit more about your team and what they do. So our team is comprised of uh, scientists, people in exercise physiology, biomechanics, and mental performance, and so on. And we look at different tasks in the military. We deconstruct them. We tear them apart to understand what their energy costs are, what the movement patterns are, what muscle groups are involved, and so on, to really understand uh, what's at stake. And how do we best train? How do we best prepare for those tasks? for our soldiers to be ready for for them. So our team essentially designed new fitness standards, new fitness tests for the military. It could be for the entire CAF or it could be for specialty occupations. We also do assessment centers or selection processes that are used to pick out the best candidates for a specialty. We do trainability studies, so we understand how to best train, how to best prepare people for specific requirements of operations and ensure that we reduce injuries and maximize training output. Essentially, we're trying to bring science to operations. So how did you get started on all of this? It started off as mainly developing fitness standards. So at the time, uh, in 2007, 2008, our mandate was to create a replacement for the former CF Express evaluation. That test uh, was good for its time. We we're at probably ahead of our time at, uh, you know, for the mid-80s uh, because we were following some uh, legal mandate to make sure that whatever standards were being applied to the Canadian Forces were deemed to be bona fide occupational requirements, which is a term in the Canadian Human Rights Act that basically stipulates that an employer cannot discriminate on its employees or, or kick somebody out for fitness unless that fitness standard is directly linked to the job. And so that's the premise on which we started. So 25 years later, I think methods have evolved. The philosophies behind fitness and the operations had also evolved. So it was a good time for us to revalidate what the fitness requirements were for the military. Right. And so the express test was the old standardized test that everybody had to do. What did you do to develop the new test? Project Force at the time was a big undertaking. We went to multiple different bases, uh, interviewed multiple people, more than a thousand people where we surveyed, we got them in focus groups to understand what were the essential tasks that any member of the Canadian Forces had to do. From that point on, in 2008, 9, 10-ish, we went to Canada Command as well as CEFCOM because those were the two force employers and we asked them, what does it take to deploy people? to deploy CAF members onto different theaters. And from those lists of roughly four or 500 tasks, they boiled it down to 
probably 20 tasks. And from there, we measured those tasks. We, we went in the field, reenacted those scenarios, measured, instrumented CAF members doing those scenarios in an operational setting. And we were able to come up with the physical cost of doing those tasks, something like carrying a jerry can over a certain distance to refuel a generator. So we would take people, measure their heart rates, measure with a GPS, measure all the distance they covered, measure the weights, the drag forces, all that stuff that is involved in, in the physical task of doing this. And then once all those tasks have been measured, either in the laboratory setting or in the field, we were then able to boil it down to what does it cost? And if the aerobic cost of one test, one task was X and the other one was Y, we took the most physically demanding one and kept that one. So by a process of elimination and combination of tasks or um, concentration of a task, so some tasks had some components that were quite easy, but some others were more difficult, we kept the most difficult tasks. So at the end of the day, we had six tasks that represented what it meant to serve in the Canadian military. And what were those tasks? There was a vehicle extrication, there was a stretcher carry, a pickets and wire carry, which is like building a fence. There was a sandbag fortification task, a picking and digging, just like if you're digging a trench or an ablution facility, and also breaking ground with, with a pickaxe. And an escape to cover task, which means that you're going to cover uh, under fire, for example. Those six tasks are simulations. They're quite onerous in terms of time and equipment. So obviously testing the regular force and the reserve force using a test that requires so much space, equipment, and time was not logistically possible. So then we, we created a proxy test or a predictor of those common military tasks. Can you explain how those six tasks translate to the current force evaluation? So the force evaluation is comprised of a pre-screening, make sure that you're healthy enough to do the test, a waist circumference to look at body composition. And then it's followed by four test items. The first one being a sandbag lift, which is lifting 30 times a 20 kilogram sandbag up to a level of one meter as fast as possible, followed by a 20 meter rush, which is changing body position every 10 meters, going to a prone position, getting back up, sprinting. So it's really a mobility test, very close to pepper potting, what we call that. A bee sees me down. Exactly. <laughs> and then um, the third test items would be the intermittent loaded shuttle, where you're doing 20 meter back and forth trips with a load of 20 kilograms that you have to carry, interspersed with 20 meters back and forth of unloaded walk. So it's roughly a 400 meter course that you're running as if you're carrying uh, material or, or kit around. And the final task is a sandbag drag, which is replicating or measuring your ability to drag a casualty on the ground. So that test, as a yearly test, is giving us a really good indicator of your ability to serve in the Canadian Armed Forces from a physical perspective. So it does screen out the people that are really not fit for the military. In the past, with the express evaluation, we had people that did well on the test, but unfortunately, when brought to the field, were not very good, and vice versa. We had people failing the test, but in the job, we're doing very good. In science, we call that type one, type two errors. In this yeah. case, with the force evaluation, we've really diminished those errors of measurement by the people that are failing the force evaluation are also the people that are struggling in their day-to-day -day operational job. And that's what we wanted to make sure is that the measurement that we were using to identify the people that shouldn't be serving in the CAF is now much more accurate than it's ever been.
So one of the critical aspects of military living is injury prevention, because if you injure yourself, especially lower body stuff, if you're doing, uh, you know, large scale exercises that can put you down for a long time, what have you guys done in that field? Um, it's definitely one of our priorities right now. A few years ago now, the balance strategy was published, which is the new physical performance strategy for the Canadian Armed Forces. And in that strategy has four priorities, which is physical activity, performance nutrition, injury prevention, and sleep. So increasing those aspects are going to increase overall performance of our organization. In injury prevention, one of the first things that we did as, as a major project was work with the Canadian Army Advanced Warfare Center in Trenton, where they were running the Patrol Pathfinder course. For those of you who know what this course is, it's a very grueling and physically demanding course where the external loads are quite extreme and the attrition rates of that course were quite high to a point where the Army is, was concerned about you know, whether or not this is a capability they want to retain. The work that we did with the Patrol Pathfinder was simply to go in there, embed ourselves with the course, and follow trainees throughout the course to monitor everything that they would do. So in terms of how much weight they were carrying, what kind of terrain they were walking in, what kind of distances, the temperatures, the wind speeds, all the aspects or variables that could increase or decrease the physical performance. After following a course, we were able to map out all the physical demands, but also the loading pattern on how much and how quickly did we overload those trainees with weights or distances. And by simply mapping this out and showing this to the directing staff and the leaders of the Advanced Warfare Center, we were able to come up with some recommendations on, on how to maybe pair the training differently or um, change the schedule, modify the schedule to putting some rest days and some recovery days so that we didn't injure people. That certainly made its way, but also finding out that people that were coming on course had very different patterns of what they had done previous to coming to Trenton. So things like they were going on a, on a jump course a couple of weeks before going on Pathfinder. So the overload was already there and they were broken sometimes when they were getting off the plane in Trenton. So we wanted to make sure that we went upriver a little bit and finding out what people had done prior to coming on course like this. So some of the recommendations and the interventions that we did was create a checklist for people to apply for Pathfinders so that their courseware were all done with, that they had ample time to recover before going on course, and also the right physical preparation, working with local PSP staff that we've trained and we briefed on what the Patrol Pathfinder course load would look like in terms of physical fitness, and therefore increasing one's chances of surviving the course, basically. How would you draw the line between something that's operational and training in terms of providing that space for rest and relaxation? Because, you know, you, you'll hear the argument that we need to push people hard during training to create environments that are similar to operational environments so that people can become adapted to that. But if you're giving a lot of extra rest and time in there for people for recovery, some people might make the argument that that's not a realistic environment. What would you say to that? Good observation. I would kind of argue that we're not necessarily changing the difficulty of the course. What we're changing is sometimes the sequence. And by just changing the sequence, we're now giving the body a way to recover without changing the overall activity of the course, if that makes any sense. You know, instead of loading the first couple of days on a course, 
and having going to a hundred pounds on on a rucksack, it's a bit more progressive. So we're we're changing maybe the navigation portion of the course a bit earlier or a bit later, and doing the water component of the course in here, so it becomes unweighted or less impact. So it's just rejigging the schedule so that it makes a bit more sense physiologically. And tactically, hopefully, we're working with the directing staff to make sure that we're not changing the overall outcome or the output of the course while still maintaining the rigors of it. Yeah, and I mean, conceivably under those conditions as well is that you can build people up to get to that level so that when they hit the operational level, you know, if somebody's going to get hurt, having it happen on course under supervised conditions is definitely better than having it happen in an operation where you don't necessarily have access to all the resources to help somebody recover to. And part of the issue is also trying to improve the education level and awareness level of the soldiers as they're getting ready physically so that we are teaching them the right way of maintaining their bodies as their primary tools for the trade. You know, in the Army, your body is your vehicle. It's your your load carriage. It's everything. So if you don't train properly, if you don't take care of that body, unfortunately, you won't be able to do the job for as long. So ideally, going to those grueling courses and instilling the proper methodology to train goes a long way, as opposed to hoping for the best that they survive the course and then going to the unit and repeating what they've been taught, which was just go hard all the time. So obviously the army has had its own kind of mission specific requirements, uh, much like the express test, there used to be the bowel fitness test, which involved like a ruck march and a couple of other activities. What army specific stuff are you working on? So you mentioned earlier your experience with force combat. Force combat was our first real good kick at the can with a project for the Army itself. When we rolled out force evaluation, we knew from the get-go that it was going to be a, a test that was meant to apply to all CAF members as a whole. So we had started to work on what could look and feel more Army, but still using the test items that were developed for force. And that's where the creativity came in. So we looked at everything that had been done in Afghanistan in terms of uh, after-action reports. We did some surveys and and interviews. We also went to Wainwright and looked at dismounted operations to look at what were the distances that people were covering. Um, Were they still 13 kilometers, which is the old battle fitness test? Turns out what our research gave us was the distances were shorter, but the weights were higher. So what we did is started to play with our test items to come up with a a change in the force evaluation that would better reflect a dismounted operation scenario. And so when we tested that out, we went to Gagetown with some subject matter experts that would tell us how dismounted operations would go at a section level. And we measured, again, those those scenarios. And we matched the circuit of force combat to equate to what the energy expenditure would be of those urban scenarios, urban combat scenarios. So that was quite interesting. And certainly, um, we're very confident now that People that are doing force combat at a certain time range are very well prepared and ready to face the rigors of dismounted operations outside the wire, as we've seen in Afghanistan in the past. And having done it both in a trial capacity and then after that, actually doing it uh, as part of training, I thought it was pretty good gut check. It's definitely a step up from the uh, regular force test. And, uh, you know, if you're pushing yourself, it's a challenge. It's not it's not easy. No, definitely not. And I was one of the first guinea pigs to try, obviously, whatever we do in the lab, we tried first on us. And when we looked at the heat trials, 
we swallowed temperature pills that were sensors in our gut, basically, to tell us what our uh, body core temperature was. And we would walk at 30 plus degrees for a long time with the same weight and just see how our bodies reacted. So there's a lot of research that went into this. Uh, we also piggybacked on the University of Ottawa Thermoregulatory Lab to do some more heat studies. So whatever we came up with for the Army was not only safe and relevant for them, but really adapted to our weather in Canada. So the policy that followed force combat was also predicated on evidence-based information to make sure that the timing of the test and what the conditions in which the test should be, should be conducted were also kind of regulated. If you consider operationally, sometimes people are advantaged in different ways. For those who haven't seen me, I'm six foot four, I'm a big guy. Ruck marching is easy for me. Fitting into armored vehicles is not. Where does that kind of dynamic fit into your research on uh, the human dynamics side? Interesting question. Um, definitely something that we've looked at in the past and still currently doing that. Uh, it also comes up often with the gender issue, whereas is something more difficult for women or for men? Oftentimes, it's a body type issue. So as you mentioned, if you're six foot four and you're having trouble going into a certain vehicle uh, or a certain place, Somebody smaller may not have the same difficulty. When you're dragging a casualty, it's probably easier for you than it is for somebody who's five foot two and 110 pounds. Those are the most pressing issues, if I would say. Looking at the impact of body size on gait, for example. Gait meaning the way you walk and the way you biomechanically or mechanically move your body across a certain plane. Certainly, Ruck marching is a good example of where we've tried to make some inroads. In the past, whenever we did ruck marching, the military would prescribe a certain pace. And that pace would be dictated mainly by whoever was in front, and typically those were males. <laughs> Leader legs also. Exactly. And what you find with some of the research we did on force combat showed us that if, for example, somebody who's shorter than five foot four, if you go faster than a certain given pace, you start breaking down mechanically meaning that the knee and the back are now stressed at a much higher level, which causes what we call the cardiac drift, which is the energy expenditure of your heart rate. Basically, your heart rate goes up much higher than it would normally for a steady state walk. So we're getting people, just because the, the pace is slightly too fast for them, we're artificially increasing the stressor on their body for no reason. So basically, because the stride might be too long, they're mechanically no longer being efficient, exactly. which is causing a significant increase in expend energy expenditure as a result of that. Therefore, not really operationally relevant. So when we did the study on dismounted operations, we found that the pace at which people were walking to a combat site, for example, or a battlefield, was not as important as making sure they got there still <laughs> able to fight. Yeah. So and we saw that also with the Special Forces, seeing that the paces were much slower than what we did with the, the former battle fitness test, which was 5.33 kilometers an hour. We didn't need to go as fast, especially with load on, to be more combat efficient. It was actually the opposite. We're carrying more load, we should go a little slower. So with force combat, we kind of limited that to, you gotta go your five kilometer between 50 and 60 minutes, which ensured that we didn't go too fast, but not too slow either. So that 50 minutes is for the people that are faster, Sure, if you can have that stride and you're comfortable in that stride, go, do it in 50 minutes. But if you're shorter, doing it 60 minutes is also acceptable. 
and probably more wiser to make sure that you preserve your body to be able to do the test afterwards, which is why, again, the force combat sequence is a ruck march first, followed by the test to make sure that you're still able to carry out the most important tasks of a soldier, which is being able to fight and carry and drag and not just walk. So we're talking a bit about basically physical performance. Do you guys do any work in the mental performance areas? For the CAF itself, right now we're doing very little in mental performance. What we've done, though, is starting to work with our special forces community to develop those capabilities. So with our SOFCOM operators, we have within my team some uh, mental performance research officers and research uh, assistants that develop new ways of dealing with when you mix physical performance with mental performance. We're essentially applying a sports psychology lens to military operations. So we're, we're using stuff that works on Olympic athletes, we're now transposing them onto our tactical athletes or our, our soldiers in the field. Things like using tactical breathing or visualization before you go into a, a close quarter battle house where you're meant to decipher uh, friend from foe and, and make the right decisions while being at a very high elevated heart rate because you're actively engaging in a firefight, right? That work has also led to innovations with the Air Force, where we have a mental performance coach, if you will, with the flight school in Moose Jaw, with our, our pilot trainees, where they've seen that the workload and the stressors that were placed upon the pilot candidates was quite high, and the failure rates were sometimes difficult to swallow. So now bringing somebody with that background was prepping them almost like a sporting event, and that's led to really positive results. So those types of examples of how we are blending in the physical and the mental performance are making their way. We're not quite ready to do it for the conventional forces, but it's definitely in the books for the future. So what else do you have in development right now? Another major initiative that we're working on in conjunction with the health services is a women's wellness program. It's a major investment into ensuring that women and diverse uh, individual within CAF are properly looked after to also enhance their performance. Things like what happens to women that are in prenatal and postpartum, so after they give birth, when they come back to the CAF, when their mat leave is, is done, how do they recover? How do they prepare physically to make sure they can come back to the job without injuring themselves or coming too hard, too fast into the test, for example. So we're doing some major initiatives and hiring some people to look after those specific issues that are, are linked to women's performance with regards to nutrition, physical activity, sleep, and the different phases of their career as well. So women entering menopause, for example, may may have some different needs in terms of physical preparation and nutrition than what they had when they came into basic military training. Also a recruit. The recruit coming into the CAF may have different needs than a male recruit. So we're looking at those issues and making sure that we have some answers to prevent them from getting injured, because that's one of the leading cause of women leaving the CAF is they get injured earlier. And therefore, what can we do from a PSP perspective and a health perspective to help them stay healthy and have longer careers within the CAF? So that's a major initiative that we're undertaking now. So for somebody listening right now who maybe wants to take full advantage of what PSP does and what the human performance cell does, what would you recommend to them? What, what can they do? Try them. <laughs> Honestly, across the country, 
usage of PSB staff and PSB resources is very disproportionate. We have bases where PSB is embedded with units and they know them by first name and they're they're in there, in the hangars, on the ship's deck and everywhere. And other bases where they tend to not even go see them. So they have their own gyms on their unit lines and basically uh, do their own thing. There's a, a resource and richness to go and check out PSB. Uh, I remember a an old group in Five Brigade that I was privy to when we were briefing on the force project where uh, a study had been done on injury prevention at the brigade and showing the prevalence of injuries when PSB was involved in leading PT versus when it was run by just anyone in the unit. And the numbers were completely astonishing. So the presence of somebody who actually does that for a living, be able to plan and lead PT is important and does save injuries and save costs to an army unit. So I would say to the units that haven't tapped into their PSB resources, try them out. We have bases where we send PSB on courses. We've sent PSB on deployment. We send PSB on everywhere. Our researchers have been on ship, on helicopters, on boats, on ribs, everywhere. We go where they go and we measure what they do to make sure that we understand fully the nature of their job to be able to support them with the right training, the right approach, the right mental performance, the right strategies, and even nutrition strategies to make sure that they have a a long and healthy operational life in the Kenyan Armed Forces. All right, well, thanks for being here and giving us the inside scoop on what's happening uh, in the deep in the labs at the PSP side. Thanks, it was my pleasure. That was Patrick Gagnon, who's the National Manager of the Human Performance Research and Development Cell at PSP. If you want to know more about what PSP does, you can check out their website at calfconnection.ca, and the address is in our show notes. I'm Captain Adam Morton for the Canadian Army Podcast. Orton out. Orton out.